How can one entrepreneur make opportunities for thousands more? Welcome to Venture Voice, episode number 41. I'm your host, Greg Gallant, and today I'm talking with Premal Shah, the president of micro-lending internet startup Kiva.org. Before launching Kiva, Premal spent five years at PayPal developing ways to help people make smoother online transactions. We will find out how his new venture uses PayPal's technology to send money where it's needed most. Micro-lending got its start 30 years ago at the hand of Mohammed Yunus, who was recently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for pioneering the field. The idea behind micro-lending was simple. Allow the world's extreme poor access to capital so they could become self-sufficient and improve their lives. Up until now, only banks and NGOs or non-governmental organizations could make micro-loans. In less than 12 months, Kiva.org has made good on its pledge that all it takes to become a micro-lender is a credit card and access to a computer. Working out of a modest ground floor office in San Francisco's Mission District, Primal and a small cadre of mostly volunteer staff are developing a site that lets you directly provide capital to help the poor start businesses in countries from Bulgaria to Uganda. In today's show, we will discuss how Primal found a calling in social entrepreneurship and how he hopes Kiva can harness the power of online communities to add transparency to the world of microcredit. Premal, tell me how you got interested in social entrepreneurship. Well, um, so when I was in college, I was an economics major, and I learned about something called microfinance, which is the provision of low-cost working capital to entrepreneurs in the developing world. So, for example, a woman who is in Kenya who might have a small piece of land, if she had you know, $80 for an irrigation pump, uh, she could actually get more productivity out of the land and increase her income from maybe $120 a year to $1,200 a year and actually repay that loan. And what prevents her from actually getting loans in the first place is that she's typically illiterate. She may not have any credit history or collateral. Um, and so she can't go to the local bank like you or I could and actually get a loan for a small amount of money. And she's asking for such a small amount of money that it's not really profitable for the bank to serve her. And so what's what's happened in, over the last 30 years is this concept of microfinance, which is having these largely nonprofit organizations around the world actually coming in and lending money in small amounts at low interest rates to the working poor. And it's not a donation or a handout because the repayment rates are 95% plus, and it's cheaper than the informal credit sources like the village moneylender or the village loan shark who might charge 100 to 800% interest rates. So Anyways, this, this, this whole concept of microfinance is getting a lot of traction, I think, now in the mainstream press, and I was pretty interested in it 10 years ago in college. But you know, after college, I uh, went into the corporate world, worked as a consultant, and realized that that wasn't really very much fun because I didn't really didn't feel like I was owning something or creating something. So I left management consulting in New York and came out to a small company here in Silicon Valley called PayPal which at the time was very small, less than 60 employees. And I think people, by and large, still thought it was kind of a joke of a, of a company. What do you mean I'm going to email money to friends? But I think what PayPal had that uh, a lot of companies didn't at the time was uh, a couple things. One is it's an idea that my mom could understand. It was a simple idea. The value proposition makes sense. It didn't try to invent a new currency, but it actually worked on the backs of existing things. So the credit card networks, email, etc. And it was actually having good organic traction. And so 
Um, I started as a, in the product management team at PayPal and was there for six years. I think as the company got bigger, I realized that I wanted to go back to something more entrepreneurial and thought a lot about microfinance and what would the intersection of the things I know and love look like. So PayPal, eBay, microfinance, what would it look like if it were all blended together? And uh, that's where Kiva.org came into play is, is teaming up with a few other folks who started a small website uh, to help basically make this into something that is an internet public good. Now, I imagine it must have been easy to get a good feel for PayPal because something that you could understand, like you were saying, your mother could use it. Um, your mother would never use a microfinance system or it must be you know, something that is hard to relate to growing up here. How did you make that tangible as opposed to this kind of an abstract theory that you'd read about in the Times? Sure. So, you know, that was just the problem is that I think in Newsweek or New York Times, you would see an article about uh, microfinance institutions or, but for example, the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh that would be making loans to the poor. But And then you'd also see kind of Angelina Jolie and Bono running around saying, you know, hey, let's get involved in global poverty alleviation. But I think what was missing for the average consumer was how do I actually get involved in a way that is transparent so I know kind of where my money is going in a way that's sustainable so that I can kind of recycle the funds over and over. And you could donate to microfinance institutions, but you can never really invest. You can never really pick an entrepreneur like you can on Kiva.org and actually make a $25 loan to that person. And as they kind of buy that inter- irrigation pump and start earning a higher uh, standard of living, they can actually repay that loan via PayPal and, and you get your money back. And so with that, you get a very transparent, connective experience with the micro-entrepreneur around the world. So I think it's just trying to make concepts that are academic and theoretical, like microfinance, into something that's really tangible, like I can adopt this business, make a loan to it, help finance it, and, and get my money back. Now, did you ever have any personal experience with microfinance or, you know, how did that actual experience kind of get into the company? Sure. So, uh, you know, back in college, I went off to India and worked with a small microfinance institution and, you know, watched firsthand how these small loans could actually literally change. Like we're talking $80, which isn't very much to us, but it would fundamentally change the trajectory of someone's life and their, and their family's life by providing them seed capital to buy three cows so that they could start a dairy business or a sewing machine so that they could become a tailor. And so I had a chance to go back to India about a year and a half ago and you know visit another microfinance institution and actually post up some of these micro-entrepreneurs up onto eBay. And the thought was, is, hey, maybe we could use eBay to solicit loan capital, you know, $25 at a time from kind of the average American who's visiting eBay. Well, that, that listing got taken down from eBay because it's a violation of, of eBay's policies. You can't solicit loans on eBay. But Kiva.org came along, started by a couple of friends of mine, and I immediately thought, this is, this, you know, this deserves to be something big. So here I am now. So you saw eBay couldn't handle and I guess you didn't have enough sway after being acquired by eBay uh, and PayPal to get them to change things. Tell me what it was like with this new company. Like how did how the first loan get arranged? Sure. So the first loan, um, you know, basically Kiva was started by 
an engineer at TiVo named Matt Flannery. And he basically at night just built a small PHP website. And his wife was out in Uganda and she basically submitted photos of eight entrepreneurs out there, very low income entrepreneurs. And they emailed people on their wedding invite list, essentially. And, you know, it was, it was kind of the 50 or 60 folks who were on that list. Um, they kind of went in and they sponsored. They bought these $25 shares in these small businesses, these eight small businesses. And that was in early 2005. And what was great is 100% of these small, you know, eight small businesses were fully repaid by October of 2005. And that's when they decided to really kind of make a go of it and, and post up 50 small businesses from Uganda and actually issue a press release. And that's when the pre- when, that's when the blogosphere found out about it. And uh, it's essentially when that happened, you know, the, the number of visitors to Kiva.org just exploded. Matt quit his job. I quit my job later on. And now we're forming a company around it. Great. So, uh, so it just kind of came about kind of haphazardly, it sounds. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, I think one big lesson in entrepreneurship is you just got to get started, get a product out there, and then, you know, see how the world re- reacts. The biggest danger, I think, is, you know, spending a lot of time doing analysis and PowerPoint and running around and, and trying to, you know, line up all the ducks before you get started. Instead, I think the, the brilliance of Kiva was it was just a test. It was a fun social experiment for some friends and family. And it just got uh, picked up by the blogosphere and it turned out to be a bigger idea than we ever imagined. And so now, you know, you can invest more. What's the incentive for these businesses to repay? I imagine if they don't, it'd be hard to take them. I mean, God knows what civil courts are out there. Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, we were talking about uh, ideas that your your mom on um, your mom might understand. My mom doesn't believe that these small businesses um, that are earning less than one dollar a day, um, they you know they 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 live in pretty poverty stricken areas. She originally did not believe that they would actually pay back her $25 loan. I mean, she really viewed that loan as a donation. But what's really incredible about microfinance is that what happens with the money is that money goes to actually a group of, of, of people, usually women. And the women actually monitor each other and the repayments. And if one of the women defaults in the group, and they all kind of know each other because they live in the same neighborhood, then all of the women will be penalized by not being able to receive a loan in the future. And so this kind of reputational collateral or peer monitoring is what keeps the repayment rates at 95% plus in microfinance, which is better than credit card portfolios here in the U.S. And to date, $50 billion has been lent to about 100 million people. Um, and, uh, you know, again, 95% repayment rates. And on Kiva, we have 100% repayment rate on about 700 entrepreneurs so far. So what are some of the other metrics you look at? You must look at just how much money you've loaned, um, you know, what's the average size, you know, what kind of metrics do you have right now on this business? Yeah. So to date, we have about 5,000 registered users. We've raised about $400,000 on the internet. The average loan per user is about $73. Um, So it's kind of very Howard Dean style. And I think what's interesting is no one user actually contributes to more than one or two percent of our total loans raised so it's not some you know super high net worth individual rich person who is you know making a huge contribution or a huge loan it's actually a bunch of people kind of 75 bucks at a time from across the internet who are kind of chipping in and making loans to these small businesses on the site 
Was that tempting, though? I mean, you're here in Silicon Valley. You know, it's not too hard to find a bunch of rich people who could just each throw in ten grand. Did that cross your mind? Like, let's just get people to donate a bunch of money to us. You know, I think I think there's a lot of organizations that go after high net worth individuals. I think Kiva. You know, we believe in grassroots capitalism, meaning how do you get the average guy, you know, with twenty five bucks to actually you know, make a loan. And when you get your money back, it's almost like a non-financial commitment because you're getting your money back and it's at a very low price point. How do we engage kind of the masses and, and get them to actually participate in poverty alleviation in a way that, um, you know, confers, it's kind of based on mutual dignity with, the, with the, the business that they're sponsored. So, you know, I think over time we would love to get higher average loan sizes, sure. But our goal is really to um, sign up as many users as possible and get them you know, to participate $25 at a time and, and, and have them learn about how the working poor are actually good uh, credit risks. So what's the of all the loans that you've made, what's the most engaging story to you? you know, which, which one did you say, hey, this is really cool what this person's going to do with the money? Well, there's there's a lot of stories on the website, and I think what's exciting about Kiva is that it makes the, the the lives of these entrepreneurs in the developing world very transparent. And so I think there's a lot of interesting things. I have a couple favorite ones. Um, the first one is this guy in Bulgaria who started a bike shop, and he raised, I think, about $500 loan to basically start a bike shop. And to promote his bike shop, he, he basically created these bike racing competitions. And he's uploaded photos or the loan officers uploaded photos of these different bike race, bike races of these kids, you know, age bracket five years old, all the way up to, I think, 18 years old. And it's a real creative kind of marketing ploy from an entrepreneur who honestly was earning less than, you know, a few dollars a day to actually jumpstart his business. And it's the kind of thing that any entrepreneur would probably brainstorm and, and creatively execute, which is how do you drive people to 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 your business? And so I really liked his creativity with with uh, the bike races. Another another f- uh, favorite business of mine is a woman who sells eels in Cambodia. The, the pictures of her business are just incredible, and it just you know to me the the English that's up on the website isn't kind of your perfect grammatical English, but you know with the pictures and kind of the the English you can actually get a real sense of how diverse the human condition is and how some things are palatable you know, in other places, which definitely wouldn't be palatable here. So uh, the eel business, I think, is uh, in Cambodia is another favorite of mine. (laughs) And then how do you actually get the money out there and get them to, you know, use a computer and put all this up? I imagine they didn't all have PayPal accounts before you gave them a loan. So, um, you know, essentially what we do is we aggregate funds from across the internet using PayPal. And PayPal is actually a partner of Kiva and it's giving us free payment processing, which is the first time in history it's given any company free payment processing. So that's pretty cool. And that allows us to pass 100% of the loan funds to these intermediary microfinance institutions that are out in the field, say in Uganda, Kenya, you know, Senegal, Honduras, that are out in the field actually screening these local businesses and determining which ones to post up on Kiva. So we send them on a monthly basis a bulk wire, say, of, you know, $50,000, and that's at a 0% interest rate. And then they go on and they online that money to the businesses that they've listed on the website. And uh, over the course of typically 12 months, they collect kind of one-twelfth of the 
the loan amount plus some interest to cover their operating expenses. And um, and then they remit those funds back to Kiva, and then Kiva uses PayPal to pay out all the lenders on the internet. So if it's a zero percent interest rate, that doesn't sound like a good business for you to be in. Well, so you know we are a, a, a nonprofit organization that's a five hundred one c three, and today we're offering zero percent. What we'd like to do actually is let interest rates float on the website. So just like on eBay, how a seller can basically list let's say, you know, an item in their garage and cha- determine the price as well as the quality of the item as well as the, the seller's reputation. Those are the three things that a buyer might weigh on eBay. We would like one day for lenders to come to the website and look at a particular business on the site and, and weigh three variables. The, the interest rate that they could earn, the repayment risk of that loan, as well as the social impact um, measure. And, and they should vary, all three of them, between the different microfinance institutions that we're working with around the world. And so it's really the vision is to create an open marketplace. The reason we have 0% interest right now is because of just government regulations, and we're working through uh, with the SEC the ability to offer non-zero interest rates. And I think it'd be very exciting to actually let people actually earn a rate of return where they're financially indifferent between Kiva and changing someone's life and maybe their bank account on a risk-adjusted basis, and I think that is possible. So you say one of the things that's fascinating about this, and I'm sure you are around a lot at PayPal. PayPal, I mean, we had David Sachs on the show who you mentioned was your former boss, and they had a lot of kind of libertarian ideals behind it. And the idea of capitalism is that, of course, you know, capital markets don't need to consider the social good of where money goes. It just doles out the money based on self-interest and wherever the most efficient loan can be made. So do you think that you need to promote this kind of, you know, multi-concerned lending where people consider social interest and all these other things? Or do you have faith that you can set up this market, that capitalism take care of it, and people won't care one way or the other about if there's some social good or not? This is one of the most exciting things I think about Kiva. Um, we think for that for the first time in history, we will actually be able, via the wisdom of the crowds and the number of lenders who are kind of rating each microfinance institution and, and the transparency on the site, we'll actually be able to bake into the financial price um, the, the, social, the social value creation. So usually social value creation, just like pollution, is just thought of as, as an externality, and it's hard to actually bake into the price of a, of a good or the price of, you know, of interest on the site. But the idea is that each business that's listed on the site by these different microfinance institutions, and today we're in about 13 countries, each business, there's journal updates posted or blog updates posted on each business. And over time, it'll be very transparent which businesses from which organizations, um, which ones have high social impact. So some organizations might actually have education and training and healthcare programs and really work with the poorest of the poor. And other organizations might not really work with the poorest of the poor, but might offer a higher interest rate to the lender. Through letting the community, the internet community, rate each loan, just like you can rate a video on YouTube or you can rate you know, a picture on Flickr, we think what we'll be able to do is actually create a quantitative metric on social value. And so then the lender can weigh the quantitative metric on social value creation as well as the financial return as well as the repayment likelihood. And those three variables will allow us to create a real market market rate that will kind of allow for capital flow efficiently to the right uh, microfinance institutions. 
I think it's an interesting trend now that we're seeing out in Silicon Valley now and across the country. Some companies are getting financed partially based on a lot of the information that's available online. So if the company has a blog or maybe the founder's LinkedIn profile or now Facebook profile, MySpace page, do you see those type of effects uh, coming in here to doing microfinance? Well, so, you know, I think transparency is huge. Um, I think the reason why many Americans, you know, when you're walking down the street and, you know, a homeless person asks you for a few bucks, it's just a few bucks. But one of the things that prevents people from actually giving that, that money is they don't know where that money is going to go and they don't know how effective that money is going to be. And so in the case of these entrepreneurs in the developing world, if you can be transparent about how that money is being used, whether it's kind of through these MySpace-type profiles, it can be incredibly – it can motivate a lot of people to actually participate because they – you know, people want to change the world. They just want to know that it's done effectively. And it seems like the flip side to it, I think one of the interesting things about your site, I noticed there are a lot of photos on there to give people a sense of the entrepreneur's it struck me, though, um, in the book Blink, Malcolm Gladwell cited, was talking about the story, why there are no women on the Philharmonic. And people had all these theories that women, you know, couldn't hear, didn't have the same hearing as men, weren't wired right for it, whatever the reasons were. Then unrelated, they started doing a policy where they'd screen, put screens between the people who'd listen to the recitals and the person who's doing the recital. And all of a sudden, women started to get on the harmonic. So of course, you know, there are good people there judging who's going to be on the harmonic, but being exposed to those extra factors clouded their judgment or changed their judgment. It wasn't just all about the sound. Do you worry that the photos get to people's prejudice a little bit and not lead to as efficient of lending market as if you didn't have photos and focus the information on more hard numbers? You know, I think I mean, that's a great question. But the market rate is the market rate. And so it should bake in all variables, including emotional return or psychic return. So you, people buy a pair of jeans because of the brand, right? I mean, it is, it is no tangible benefit of brand X versus brand Y, but some people pay $30 more for it because it just makes them feel a certain way. So the, the I think the goal of a marketplace, a truly transparent, well-functioning marketplace, is to put as much information out there and then let that information be weighed intelligibly by the lenders. And so if they weigh not only financial return and social impact, but emotional or psychic return, that should be baked into the price. I think that's quite fine. The goal is just to make it as transparent as possible and see what, see where the, you know, the capital shakes out. And, you know, I think this would be an incredible social experiment to follow over the next few years to see, you know, what Americans actually pick. I can tell you right now at 0% interest rate, so equal kind of financial return and roughly equal repayment risk, a Kenyan is 10 times more likely to be funded than a Bulgarian. A Kenyan is 4.6 times more likely to be funded than a Cambodian. So you're right. There are kind of, you would say, you know, things that aren't pure information. It, it, it's, it's emotional resonance basically drives or a sense of perceived need definitely drives the rate of sponsorship on the side of each business. But, you know, at the same time, that, that could be just that's really the market rate. And we're just basically making it transparent. Tell me about your choice to become a 501c3 to become a nonprofit rather than a for-profit. Sure. So I think a lot of people look at our traction. Um, you know, we're in a thousand plus blogs. Um, we've been picked up by the mainstream press. Um, in 10 months, we've gone from one village to about 13 countries. And we're, we have, you know, about 30% a month 
month-over-month uh, -month growth. They look at attraction, especially VCs here in Silicon Valley, and they, they ask, why aren't you a for-profit? Why aren't you trying to create a for-profit B2C company like, say, Prosper.com? And I think the reason why, the main reason is because our vision is to become an Internet public good uh, like Wikipedia or uh, Mozilla or, you know, the kind of the early version of Craigslist. And our goal isn't to um, necessarily extract profits and make, you know, money off the backs of the poor so much as it is to scale this thing and reinvest any surplus into scaling the platform and reaching more of the poor in the developing world. Also, as a 501c3 nonprofit, we actually reduce our execution risk and are, you could argue, more financially self-sustainable. The reduced execution risk, what I mean by that is that regulators here in the U.S. and abroad, when you're a nonprofit, treat you differently. They know that you're in it for the public good. And, you know, we're actually lending people loan money to a new asset class, which is, you know, a goat herder in Uganda. There's a lot of regulatory issues, but people are generally kind of giving us the green light because they know we're in it for the public good. Two, you know, we're more financially sustainable because PayPal gives us free payment processing and they write it off because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. Google gives us free AdWords, and that's enormously valuable in spreading spreading uh, kind of awareness about Kiva's site. And, of course, we get free kind of legal and uh, accounting help, pro bono services, again, as a result of being a nonprofit. So the idea is that we can do more on less resources as a 501c3. And, you know, finally, I'll just say that Craigslist today only has 18 employees and their number seven site on the web. They could do, I mean, you know, for the longest time, they had less than 10 employees. I think to run an online platform, you don't need very many employees and you don't need that much money. You just need to make the user experience as easy as possible. And, and then as long as the value proposition is clear on both sides, the marketplace will grow. So tell me about how you got those resources then. I mean, you have an office here and, sure. you know, that costs money. And then you've recruited people to come work for you and to be a part of this. Have you, have you financed the office and have you recruited the team? We have a few angels um, in the Valley who given us seed capital donation funding, essentially. We are running on that. plan is to raise about $1.5 million total in seed capital funding, um, which we think will be enough money to scale our operations and scale the volume on our site to actually start layering in revenue streams. And Kiva's revenue streams will be charging the microfinance institutions, a small interest rate, so maybe 1% or 2%. And as our volume scales to, say, $10 million, $40 million, then what we'll be able to do is support the, the salaries of a small staff. And, of course, we run on a lot of volunteer uh, support as well. What kind of people are able to volunteer for something like this and want to? Yeah, so uh, we've we've had a lot of people uh, reach out to us um, interested in volunteering. And as a new organization, um, one challenge is to figure out how to manage and channel um, that enthusiasm. Typically, our volunteers actually help us with spreading the word and marketing efforts. So we have volunteers in kind of you know just about every major city in the states who throw you know big Kiva parties, who uh, write in the blogosphere, who help stimulate more evangelism for Kiva. I think the second way that volunteers can get involved is please send us feedback on the website. I mean, write a spec if you care to. Actually, draft mock-ups. You know, put, put it in pictures. What would social networking look like on Kiva's site? 
what would you know what kind of feature would you want to see and there's nothing like seeing it in pictures so a lot of our volunteers actually suggest feature ideas and then take the time to actually mock it up and that's incredibly useful because we don't have a bunch of product managers here we have only a couple developers and they develop kind of whatever good ideas come to the top so if you have any good ideas on on the website and how we can improve it uh, please let us know and that'd be useful as well Anyone out there who's interested in an idea that you can start a nonprofit or kind of social company like this, what kind of resources does it take? Like what kind of skill sets were most important early on? And, you know, how much money do you need to just form a 501c3 and get the very basics running? No one here has any nonprofit experience, but I think that's why we've been doing as well as we have, because we've been running it like a business and we treat it like we're starting a company and we want it to grow as fast as possible. Um, In the nonprofit world, there's a few um, unique challenges. Because you can't offer investors equity, fundraising can be a little tricky because people really have to do it because they believe in the idea, not because they're going to make money. And so one skill set, I think, is learning how to clearly articulate the problem that you're solving by creating something. In this case, Kiva, we think we're, you know, we're helping global entrepreneurship. You know, In terms of the amount of money that you need to raise, it really depends on how much kind of uh, how many people you need to actually pull the idea off. Something like an internet platform really doesn't need that many people. I mean, at this point, our staff, we have about seven full-time staff. And, you know, many of them are kind of ex-Googlers and ex-PayPal folks like me who don't really need to pay ourselves that much at this point. So, you know, what I try to do is just get started, you know, hit up your family and friends for some initial seed capital and really prove the concept by getting users to use the site. And if users are using the site, then people, as long as you have traction, I, you know, I don't care if it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, as long as people are using your product, the money will come and you'll be able to support your operations. That, that is a firm belief of mine, as long as you are showing great growth and, 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 and value. So that's my advice is just get started, get a product out there. You know, if there's traction, then everything will fall into place. What's the biggest risk that you see for this company? not being able to get enough traffic to the website. In the early days of Kiva, we actually had too much traffic to the website. We got picked up in, in a lot of the top blogs like Daily Costs and in the mainstream press like CNN and Wall Street Journal. Um, but because we're only in one village in Uganda, we kept running out of businesses to post up on the website. Today, 10 months later only, we're in 13 countries, and these organizations, the, our local partners in 13 countries, are posting businesses each week that are in need of, of low-cost loan capital. And the trick with Kiva is to scale the number of people coming to the site in concert with the number of businesses that are being listed on the site um, so that there's good equilibrium. So far, we've been able to do it, but there's there's a lot of low-income entrepreneurs out there in the developing world in need of capital. And I'm just hoping that we can scale this thing to match that demand. Do you worry about corruption at all? I know even uh, Grameen Bank, which is kind of the premier name and one of the pioneers in microfinance, was once the subject of an expose by the Wall Street Journal's late Daniel Pearl, who kind of uncovered it, said the books aren't as good as they look. They're not conforming to standard accounting practices. What are your thoughts on that that big issue here in any kind of lending? Corruption. Corruption is a fact of life, um, especially in the developing world when it comes to international aid. We understand that that's a fact of life. And by our goal is to create as transparent of a platform as possible so that the corruption and the the cases where the business doesn't go well 
we want to actually expose that on the website because I think that kind of transparency is going to instill more confidence in lenders around the world. And so let me give you an example of this wasn't corruption, but something didn't go well. There was a woman in Cambodia who wanted to start a water spinach business. She, you know, requested a $500 loan that was, you know, screened by a local organization and posted up on Kiva's website. She then took that $500 and spent it on her daughter's wedding, which, you know, is culturally very important in Cambodia. And, you know, some people would argue that many of the loans in microfinance are used for consumptive purposes, not just productive purposes. So that happens. But instead of that microfinance institution covering it up by writing some, you know, crap story about the water spinach business, they actually had the guts to write about the daughter's wedding and actually post up some wedding photos. And at first, the lenders, because you can actually see these kind of blog updates, you know, if you loan to these businesses on the Kiva website, it's very transparent. The lenders, many of the lender comments initially were, um, you know, of, of disappointment. Hey, this is not why I lent the money. However, um, you also saw lenders kind of recognizing that if this had been a donation to some kind of faceless organization, there probably would have been no account of this. And so by, by two things, one, by creating an online platform where there's transparency, where people can actually blog about it and blog about their failures to actually you know gain respect, essentially earn a level of trust, I think that's critical. And two, loans are an information exchange as opposed to donations, meaning when you make a loan and you get your money back, you know that something has happened. You know that there's some progress being made that has allowed for that entrepreneur to repay. And so what, what a lot of people would say is that donations, you know, the accountability on each dollar that's donated versus the accountability on each dollar that's lent, it's just two different, uh, two different uh, stories there. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do is encourage people to actually make these concessionary loans, these low interest loans, because it exacts an accountability on these local organizations and these entrepreneurs to actually use the money efficiently. So as you said, you want this business to be a lot larger, and it makes sense in a market business. You want to grow the market. What are your biggest priorities in terms of how you spend your day to get that to happen? So um, I like to focus on the product. I think unless the product is easy to use and something that's a joy to use for users, users will not tell their friends. And we've really been, you know, we have no marketing budget here at Kiva. Um, so it's really been a word-of-mouth phenomenon. I mean, of course, when interest rates come on the site, all of a sudden, it's not just altruism that's that's that we're counting on, um, but we appeal to uh, other sensibilities of the average uh, American, uh, which is, you know, hey, I can make some money here as well and, and still change someone's life. And so I think those four things um, will hopefully help us scale our, our lender base. So greed is still good? Greed is still good. And greed, you know, I think... Greed is fantastic in the sense that it aligns incentives, it keeps people accountable, behavior is predictable, and you know people balance greed with their desire to do good. I think every single person has you know, a little bit of both in them. And so the idea is right now it's a 0% interest loan, which is, you could argue, better than a donation because you get your money back. But if it were a 3% interest loan or a 5% interest loan, uh, would people actually, would more people actually participate? Um, I mentioned that the average loan side is $73, but if you could earn 4% on it, maybe you'd give $700. And so that's what we want to do. And the whole goal is to reach more of the poor. And if, if that means that we need to tap into people's greed in order to raise more capital, you know, right now only 10% of the working poor have access to low cost working capital worldwide. I mean, we're talking about, you know, almost a billion people who are out there who are undercapitalized. They need to buy more chickens and they don't have the loan capital to do it. 
if if that means offering a few percentage points of interest to the American lender to get them to Kiva.org, then you know let's do that. So what do you think the world could look like if you're successful? Is this just you know a few more people get helped, or is this a fundamental change? You know, I think it's the latter. It's it's a couple of things. I mean, eBay eleven years ago, few Pez dispensers and a Beanie Baby. No one knew that it was going to be a phenomenon that it is today, where people are actually setting the price of cars and automobiles. I mean, it's actually a price setter because of the volume that it's moving in in multiple categories. Well, today there's about two billion people on Earth who are earning about two dollars a day or less. These folks are largely self-employed. They're you know chicken farmers, seamstresses, basket weavers. They don't go into a formal employer, and most of these businesses need some low-cost working capital. And the markets for that are incredibly inefficient, which is why they're paying such high interest rates today. I think Kiva at maturation could be an efficient marketplace for the flow of low-cost working capital to the poor worldwide and really a new asset class for any investor who wants to basically diversify their portfolio and really get into these small-medium enterprises around the world. So I would see kind of an open marketplace with large transaction volumes where capital is flowing you know, efficiently to well-performing microfinance on, on, uh, institutions and, and, and well-performing uh, businesses. Hey, well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. That's all for this edition of Venture Voice. Hope this show got you thinking about how innovation and entrepreneurship can change the world. Feel free to shoot back your thoughts on this, or better yet, try giving a few bucks on Kiva and let us know how it goes. There are several ways you can interact with us. Be sure to go to VentureVoice.com. You can leave comments for the public or respond to comments that your fellow listeners have left. You can also call our listener line and leave a voice comment that we might play on the show. Our listener line is at country code 1-212-461-4850. That's 212-461-4850. Until next time, this is Greg Gallant with Venture Voice, entertaining entrepreneurship.